Today we are going to actually look at two different scriptures and two different questions. So we're going to begin in Psalm 46, and then we will, after reading Psalm 46, we'll turn to 1 Kings uh, chapter 19, verses 1 through 18. If you only feel like keeping up with one of those, that's quite all right, but we will be in both places, beginning in Psalm 46. Today I have an opportunity to answer two questions. Uh, I began to looking at what role does stillness have in our prayer life? You know, we're told in Psalm 46 to be still and know that he, that I am God, where uh, Elijah hears God's, quote, still small voice in 1 Kings 19. And so the question was, what role does stillness, what role does being still or hearing God's still small voice have in our prayers? And as I was studying that, I came across another question that I had been asked, or rather the answer to another question I had been asked, which is, where do we see God's wrath in the world today? So I'm going to do my best to answer both questions today as we look at Psalm 46 and then at 1 Kings 19. Hear the word of the Lord. God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way. And the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the most high dwells. God is within her. She will not fall. God will help her at break of day. Nations are in uproar. Kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice. The earth melts. The Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come and see the works of the Lord, the desolations he has brought on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. And then turning to 1 Kings chapter 19, beginning in verse 1. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow... I do not make your life like that of one of them. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there. While he himself went a day's journey into the desert, he came to a broom tree, sat down under it and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said, take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the tree and fell asleep. All at once an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around and there by his head was a cake of bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went to a cave, into a cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, he replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. 
The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left. And now they are trying to kill me, too. The Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars and put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left and now they are trying to kill me too. The Lord said to him, go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, announce Hazael king over Aram. Also announce Jehu, anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel. And anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel-Maholah, to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escaped the sword of Hazael, and Elisha will put to death any who escaped the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal, and all whose mouths have not kissed him. Let us pray. Our Lord and Father above, we have lots of questions about this world and your actions in this world. Show us through the scripture today where you are at, where you are acting and help us rest in your sovereignty. Help us rest in your plan. Help us rest in your holiness. I pray this in Jesus name. Amen. Stillness and quietness are things that our culture Claims to pursue. We've come to a point in our culture where we have enough technology to have more leisure time at our disposal than any other culture to precede us. And yet we're busier than any culture to precede us. We're louder than any culture to precede us. And maybe not necessarily a physical loudness, but we cannot live our lives without some type of technological noise there at our disposal, whether it's on a phone or a computer or a television. We have a hard time being quiet, even here within the church. How many of you keep a TV or a radio or something on in your house, not because you're listening to it, but just because you need the noise? We're not happy oftentimes with stillness or quiet, but we say that we strive for it. Even in the church, we can fall into this pursuit of stillness and calmness and quietness. And so today what we're going to do is we're going to look at the question of where does stillness and quietness, how are we called to that or are we called to that in these two passages that we have looked at today? So the first passage is from Psalm 46, verse 10. Be still and know that I am God. I don't know how many times on Facebook I have seen a post, especially an answer to somebody confessing that they have anxiety or confessing that they are busy. 
a post reminding them of God's call here in Psalm 46.10. Just be still and know that I am God. We have work that we are about. We have family that we have to be responsible for. We have church that people expect us to show up to at least once a week. We have friends that demand our time. We are told that one of the keys to our mental health and stability is to have a hobby in our life. We are told that we need a minimum of eight hours sleep every night in order to maintain our sanity in the midst of all this. And if I had 60 hours a day to handle all those things, maybe I could work them all in. But I'm limited to 24 hours a day to get my 60 hours worth of stuff in. And in the middle of this, we are told to have a vibrant, regular devotional life that includes prayer. And if we read the books or listen to our friends, we are told that one of the keys to this vibrant devotional life is to find the means by which we can just, you know, be still and know that he is God. And now I don't want to take away from the fact that it is good for us to come before God in a sense of peace. It is good for us to come before God, emptying ourselves of ourselves But not leaving us empty there, but filling it with the things of God, specifically the word of God that tells us about what God has done in this world, what God has done in each and every one of us. It is good for us to find the means by which we can calm ourselves and focus on who God is. But is that what Psalm 46 is calling us to do? The psalmist begins by reminding us that God is our refuge and strength and ever present help in trouble. Now, why would the psalmist remind us that God is our refuge and strength and ever present help in times of trouble? Probably because the psalmist found himself in need of a God who was a refuge, who was strong and who was an ever present help in times of trouble. In fact, he lists two types of trouble here. The first is natural disasters. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea. Though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. I'm sure that many people in the Bahamas over this past week in North Carolina and in parts of Canada have watched the waters roar and foam as Hurricane Dorian either sat parked in one part of the ocean or made its way up the coast. We need a God who is a refuge in the strength in the midst of a world that oftentimes falls prey to natural disasters. Whether they're earthquakes, fires, hurricanes, landslides, flash floods, whatever it is, we need a God who is an ever-present help. Sometimes God brings us that help by diverting the storm. Sometimes God shows that He's the refuge and strength by either giving us peace in the midst of the storm, or for his children using that storm as the means by which he brings his loved ones home. But that's not the only thing that the psalmist needs God to be a refuge and strength because of. The other thing is that the nations are in an uproar. Kingdoms fall, he lifts his voice, and the earth melts. Oftentimes, the kingdoms of this world that are in an uproar in rebellion against God cause difficulties for his people. In their rebellion and their rage against God, as we read in Psalm chapter two, 
Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. As the nations rage, as the nations conspire, God says, be still and know that I am God. Quit your rebellion, quit your rage, quit conspiring against me and my people and realize that I am sovereign and in control of everything. Realize and know that God will be exalted among the nations. Realize and know that God will be exalted in the earth. And then the psalmist closes with another call to comfort, knowing that the Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. When are we most often called to be still and know that he is God? It's when we're in rebellion. It's when we're living a life of unrepentant sin. Where are we seeking to rage and conspire against God? It is there that we are to be still and know that he is the sovereign the righteous judge. It is there that we are to be reminded that we are called to confess and to repent. The call to be still is a call to understand that God is sovereign, that God is holy, and He calls us to live a life of repentance before Him. So that leads us to the passage in 1 Kings chapter 19. This passage where we pick up with Elijah Elijah has just had this amazing encounter with God on Mount Carmel. What has happened to Elijah? He understood that the true God was the God over the false God of Baal. And so he gathered the prophets of Baal. He called them together there on Mount Carmel. And he said, you guys build your altar sacrifice your sacrifice and you 400 prophets pray to Baal and see if he'll bring fire. And so they spend from sun up until after lunch, yelling, screaming, dancing, cutting themselves, praying to Baal. Did Baal send fire? Absolutely not. So Elijah builds his altar, slaughters the animal, puts the wood on it, and then pours these like four 20-gallon jugs of water over the altar, soaking the animals, soaking the wood, soaking the stones, and filling a trench that he had built around it. And very quietly he says, Lord, I honor you. Honor me. Show your power by sending fire. And God sent fire that evaporated the water, burned the wood, burned the animal, and melted the stones. And the people of Israel rejoiced. They slaughtered the prophets of the false god Baal and exalted the covenant God of Israel. And the next day, King Ahab goes and tells his wife, Jezebel, everything that Elijah had done. And how does Jezebel react? Jezebel reacts by declaring that if May the gods do to me what you did to my prophets if you're still alive tomorrow. Elijah fears for his life and he runs. 
He doesn't just leave Israel, the northern kingdom. He doesn't just leave Judah. He goes outside of the entire realm of the people of God. And he sits down underneath a tree and he says, I wish I was dead. Let's take my life, God. I'm over. It's done. Forget it. And he falls asleep, hoping that he died. Now, the ironic thing is, as much as Elijah hopes he dies. Do you realize how Elijah passes his power on to Elisha? God takes him on up into heaven without allowing him to die. I find it very ironic as I was studying this this week. But anyway, he lays down to die. The angel wakes him up and says, why don't you have a little bit to eat? So he eats. He goes back to sleep. The angel wakes him up again, says you have a long journey ahead of you, so eat some more. So he eats some more and he gets up and he runs for 40 days and 40 nights until he ends up at Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai. And he goes and he finds himself a cave there and he goes and he lays down and falls asleep in the back of the cave. So here's Elijah. He has seen God work in a mighty way by sending fire from heaven that melted rocks. Afraid for his life, asleep in a cave. God meets him in the cave and he says, Elijah, what are you doing here? He rebukes Elijah. Elijah should not be on the Sinai Peninsula. Elijah should be right there in front of Jezebel saying, do the worst you can. My God is the all powerful God. How does Elijah respond to God? He says, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. Look at what I've done for you, God. I've proclaimed your name. I prayed to you. I've done all these things because I love you so much and I'm so passionate for who you are. But the Israelites, the people you called me to talk to about repentance and worshiping you, they've rejected your covenant. They've broken down your altars. They've put your prophets to death with the sword. And you know what? I'm the only one left and they're trying to kill me too. All this stuff I've done for you, you've left me in this position where I've got to hide out in a cave hundreds of miles from where I live because my life's in danger. You've hung me out to dry, God. What are you doing to make this right? So God says, all right, come out to the mouth of the cave. Standing there in the mouth of the cave and this great powerful wind comes along, this windstorm that's hurling rocks and trees past the cave. I mean, think about a windstorm that's blowing hard enough to throw rocks, large rocks. But what are we told about God? Is God in the windstorm? No. And so God sends an earthquake. The mountain shakes underneath Elijah. But God's not in the earthquake either. Then he sends fire upon the mountainside. And we're told that God is not in the fire as well. When we suffer persecution, when we look at the world around us, what do we expect? We expect fire. We expect wind. We expect some type of earthquake like God has revealed himself to do throughout scriptures to come along. And to destroy the wicked, do we not? That's what Elijah was hoping for. But God wasn't in those things. Where was God? It's called, it says here in a quiet whisper. In other translations, it says in a still small voice. But the words together means a brief utter silence. 
Have you looked out upon the wickedness of the world and gone, where are you, God? Why don't you do something about this? The entire world, God, looks at your law and says, I don't care what God says. I don't care what God says about marriage. I'm going to do what I want. I don't care what God says about theft. I'm going to do what I want. I don't care what God says about murder, about idolatry, about honesty, about covetousness. The world around us says, God, we don't care. We're going to do what makes us feel good. And you're not going to do anything about it. And we sit here looking out on that world going, God, look at what I do, man. Look at how holy I am. Why don't you do something about them? Why don't you just destroy them like you did Korah in Exodus, in the Exodus time period? Why don't you just destroy them and send fire upon them like you did Sodom and Gomorrah? Why don't you just have an earthquake open up and eat them up, swallow them into the earth because they're in rebellion against you? God tells Elijah, I'm in the silence. When you don't think I'm there, I'm working. You want signs. You want wonders. You want extraordinary displays of God's wrath and punishment against sin. I'm at work in the silence. How is God at work in the silence? Well, he's at work in the silence in two ways. Romans chapter 2, we read earlier. Talking about storing up wrath against those who continue in their rebellion against God. Outside of Jesus, every time you sin, every time you tell God that you don't care about his law, you are stacking up wrath against yourself. You are writing an IOU to God that just gets bigger and bigger and bigger over your life. And you may not feel the wrath now. We may look out from this church and we may agree with Asaph in Psalm 73. The wicked prosper and the righteous go to their graves hungry and sick. But God says they are storing up wrath against themselves. Their debt just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And when Asaph entered the house of the Lord and saw the future that awaited the wicked... He understood that while God may not seem to be working now, that wrath will come due. That judgment will happen. The other thing God is doing by not sending his wrath in the fire, the earthquake and the flood. Is giving the wicked an opportunity to repent. Think of sins that you have committed. And think of what would have happened to you had God sent his wrath upon you. Immediately. Where would you be right now? Experiencing the fullness of God's eternal wrath. Had he not offered you grace in the midst of your sin. Had he not waited for a time until you got to the point that he had preordained that you would hear and accept the gospel. What if he had preordained to just take you out in that first sin? What if he had preordained to send an earthquake? That one time. What if he had preordained to send a fire that one time? You'd be in trouble. So God reveals to Elijah that he need not worry about all the people that are coming after him. 
all the people that are rebelling against God because God is at work even when he seems silent. So he asked Elijah once again, what are you doing here, Elijah? Now me, I know myself, and so I would respond according to James 5.17 in the exact same way that Elijah responded. Because James 5.17 tells us that Elijah was a man just like us. And yet God heard his prayer. So how does Elijah respond? Does he get up? Does he go back to Jerusalem? Does he go confront Jezebel with the power of God, with joy and strength? When God says, what are you doing here? No, he says the exact same thing he said before. I've been zealous for you. Look at everything I've done for you and you've done nothing for me. You've hung me out to dry. How many times are we confronted with the reality that God is at work in the silence and yet not change our ways? How many times are we confronted with God's power and yet keep moving right on along, feeling sorry for ourselves, telling God, I wish you'd just take me now. I'm going to bed. That's what Elijah did. So God says, fine, I'll give you three more things to do. And and if you look at this, Elijah fades, really, until he's taken up to heaven. He says, go to Damascus. Yes, you're going to have to march right on through Israel where you are fearful of your life. But go to Damascus and anoint Hazael, king of Aram. Does Elijah do this? No, he doesn't do that. Elisha has to do it later. Also, anoint Jehu, Nimshi, king over Israel. Does Elijah do that? No, Elisha has to do that for him too. And then finally, he says, anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel-Meholah, to succeed you as prophet. That's the one thing Elijah does, is he appoints his successor before God denies his request to just let him die. And then he tells Elijah why he wants to do this. Hazael is going to put some people to death in judgment. The ones he doesn't, Jehu will take care of. The ones he doesn't, Elisha will take care of. Oh, and by the way, there's 7,000 people in the land I am asking you to go to and to preach the gospel to who believe me, who trust me, and who find their strength in me. Elijah should have already known this. He ran into another prophet before Mount Carmel who saved at least a hundred prophets from the knife of Jezebel. Elijah should have known he wasn't alone. The utter silence in which God reveals himself to Elijah was not some meditative state that Elijah entered into to find what God wanted him to do. It was a rebuke to Elijah. It was a rebuke saying, you don't think I'm there, but I am. You don't think I'm working against the wicked, but I am. And that's, by the way, that's the answer to the second question, which is where is God's wrath today? It's being stored up for the day of judgment. Or it's being passed over because the person comes to Christ, to faith in Jesus. We have to be careful When we seek stillness. Yes, it is a busy, busy world. It is a loud, loud world. And we need 
to find ways to find calmness in the midst of this world. And, and the, the way we find calmness in the midst of this world, the way we find quiet in the midst of this world is to understand that God is sovereign over all the busyness and the noise in our life. And God is sovereign over the wickedness that happens around us. But our main concern in these two passages is to be still and know that God is sovereign over us to seek out areas of our life where we need to repent and to calm those rebellious areas and bring them into conformity with God and his will. And the reminder from the still small voice, the gentle whisper, the brief utter silence that Elijah experienced is that God is at work even when he seems silent. I encourage you this week, read the book of Esther. And as you read the book of Esther, count how many times God is mentioned by name or even referred to in the book of Esther. I'll go ahead and break it to you right now. It's zero. God is referred to zero times in the book of Esther. There was one call by Esther to fast and pray. But she doesn't say who to fast for or to pray to. And yet God takes Israel in captivity from a time of great danger to a time of prosperity and protection. And he's not mentioned once in the whole book. God is at work in the silence of our lives. God is a God who will judge sin. He will not allow the guilty to go unpunished. But you and I are the guilty as well as those in the outside world. But God has provided for us a means of salvation. God has provided one who kept God's law perfectly, who pursued God's glory constantly and offered the rewards of covenant keeping to each and every one of us. I encourage you today, look at your life. Look at the rebellious areas of your life and be still. And know that God expects you to repent, calls you to repent. And don't forget that if you don't, God will judge sin. Do not take his silence as forgetfulness. Let us pray. Our God and Father above, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the reminder of judgment upon sin. And we thank you for the reminder that those whom you have called have had their sins forgiven in Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.